and open our books if you have them whether the smaller kind of pocketbook edition with just the verses of the much larger the more detailed and you know the more deeper explained aspects of each of these verses we left our last gathering together on the verse 18 we're on chapter 5 and verse 18 was talking about how at a certain stage of our consciousness we get to the point where such freed souls which is us potentially awaiting to be freed view with equal gaze a pious priest a cow an elephant a dog and an outcast and of course these are all just examples and we had talked about throw anybody in there anyone's name the highest the lowest the most controversial and today if you are even vaguely aware of the world there's just so much going on so much judgment criticism hate anger uh, undue praise and undue everything's heightened everything's at its highest or lowest points you've got barely anybody in that central reality and let's see if krishna what he talks about does he talk about those highs and the lows and the next verse 19 says even on this earthly plane of existence the relativities such as birth and death pleasure and pain are overcome by one who views everything even-mindedly those who can do so are verily enthroned in the unblemished incapable of being distorted spirit so krishna's talked about this before we've been through this concept before of even-mindedness the very next stanza he will again tell us what that the essence of it being not being too over joyous at those things that we consider pleasurable good you know for our benefit and not being downcast or saddened by those that we feel are you know detrimental to what we would consider uh, what we want or our desires and that goes on for everything in the world anybody and i mean anybody who has an overtly strong opinion one direction or the other in some fashion or the other is playing with this game of relativities if our goal and if we profess our goal to be one of freedom one of overcoming all delusions and limitations krishna says those who can do so even now which is those who can be even-minded right now they're already enthroned in the unblemished incapable incapable of being distorted there's no distortion there now we've talked about even-mindedness what is this even-mindedness firstly we have to understand this even-mindedness is not primarily of the mind even though the word suggests even-minded in the sense it's not just thought it's not just it's not just okay i'm i just can't i shouldn't be thinking about this and i shouldn't be maybe that's how we begin and we have to really keep bringing ourselves to the center but the even-mindedness really comes mm -hmm. in the spine we've talked about these two flows of energy in the ida and in the pingala one that goes upward to kind of rejoice at those things we consider like yes you know this happened isn't this amazing isn't this awesome 
and then the other which is this downward flow of current which is like oh no you know i can't believe that which i wanted didn't happen or oh this is how this person treated me or oh my favorite you know whatever dish wasn't served today whatever the uh, outward circumstance be because in the very next one krishna says such sages established in the one supreme being that one being in the very center of our being and unwavering in their discrimination now this is the this is the thing about unwavering this is good this is bad he's right and he's wrong this person you know should be protected and these people should be trashed uh, for that particular situation i'm i'm going to add i'm going to act all holy and but for this particular situation i'm going to be really upset and really angry so that's the unwavering reality of first our own our personalities but that's the unwavering reality of nature you see life birth death pleasure pain good bad hot cold male female up down i mean that's the entire premise of creation isn't it that it must have a relative opposite a dual reality to it and so as long as we live in the wavering means that we will act certain ways when it uh, kind of <laughs> when it supports our views and the convenient. way we see when it's convenient that's the best word when it's convenient this is how i'll be when it's inconvenient this is how i'll be and so he says such sages are neither jubilant when confronted by pleasant experiences nor depressed when confronted by painful ones now even mindedness and the concept that we've been building on again and again which is that of nishkam karma not being attached to the fruits of our actions they go hand in hand the only reason we're not even minded is because a part of us is constantly hoping expecting wanting and then thus placing our hope and intention on certain outcomes we're either going to be you know happy or sad either we're going to be encouraged or discouraged either it works out or it doesn't and so the two are really connected and i was just thinking about the concept of of being even minded and the concept also of nishkam karma and the very idea of karma just came to me as a thought in the sense the universe is created already with this very clear you can say directive from god and the directive is this whatever the quality of energy that is put out that and only that is to return back to the sender so in one sense we don't have to place any expectation we don't have to tell what we think we want to come out from this situation we don't really need to do anything because the law of karma is already created for this very purpose means if i put out good energy and if i put out focused energy there is no other option for the universe but to return that to me and if i put out you know negative criticizing distorted confused selfish energy then it's the universe has no other option but to return that to us so the very law that god created you remember before just a few verses before krishna says god's not interested in your vices or your virtues he's not even the one who's kind of making you act it is maya and in this particular case it is these laws that are put into motion so when i look at the law of karma a little dispassionately unfortunately karma has gotten a very bad rap you know it kind of it seems to us that it's there to 
punish us or to make our lives miserable because we tend to see karma from a negative perspective. But when I when we see it just as this, ah, it's here to give us exactly what we put out, it makes our own lives and how we ought to act, what we ought to do, just so much clearer. Now, the only distortion that this process has in it is that there's past stuff mixed in there. So we're not able to clearly see the cause and effect relationships. Like, well, I was acting well and somehow still this person shouted on me and I put out my best and still I didn't succeed at that, at that particular thing. But that's because karma is kind of, it's an aggregate, you know, it's like compounded interest. It's not just, it's, it's, it's also calculating everything else. But it really helps see this entire process from a, from a certain distance. And that's what's needed to be even-minded, a little perspective. The other day I went to, um, where did I go? To the dentist's office. Um, you know, I had broken my front teeth when I was a little child. And so I've had caps ever since these crowns. And now after 15 odd years, apparently it's time for me to change them. So the the dentist, he put a, he took this huge camera and he like, you know, placed it like so close to my mouth and he took a photograph of my teeth. And when I saw my teeth up close, I mean, they were ugly. <laughs> they were just like, you know, normally in the morning you brush your teeth, you look at them in the, in the mirror and there's just, just enough distance for it to look good enough. But there they were just staring, you know, these huge things staring right at me. They were chipped. They're not, you know, they were not all in the right place. And they were like stained and your gums. I mean, and you just see that the more, the more close we are to anything, the more, you know, we feel we know and we're right. And this is it. And we're just like right there. The more we're unable to see reality. And the more just a little bit of distance, things look just nicer. And so even-mindedness therefore comes with this underlying, it's not indifference. Even-mindedness therefore always comes with an underlying joy to it. Ah, isn't that nice? Isn't that pretty? Isn't that perfect? Because everything, this is what our guru said, right? What comes of itself, let it come. If we're able to do that, then and only then can we qualify as an even-minded individual. Because I know, ah, this is it. This is the consequence of all my actions. So I don't have to be attached to any fruits because the universe is already conspired to give me just those fruits that I need or that I have put into motion. And so karma, in fact, for us is the most, it supports true spiritual progress because knowing that the universe has already figured it all out is already paying attention to everything I'm doing, I don't have to be so personally involved anymore. I don't need to worry so much about, are all my actions going to bring me the results? It's like, well, the universe knows exactly. It's not gonna make even a slightest mistake. It's gonna take everything into account, everything that I've done, good and bad, and then it's going to shine that mirror back at me, and I just get to see how even-minded I am in that moment. And what Krishna is saying, what's beautiful about this is, you don't need to wait to be one with God. If you learn how to be established in even-mindedness now, you are in fact in that undistorted spirit. Isn't that amazing? I mean, 
where with all that we do and with the all that I have to do these affirmations and I have to do these special prayers and I have to you know sit for these long meditations and all of that is just gearing us to do what is to come back to the center from both corners trying to draw us back into that central channel where we can observe we can enjoy we can appreciate how beautiful creation is because it knows and it gives and it takes just what is right every form of like this is what i would like to see happen this is what i hope to see happen just drops away because oh what is is happening is exactly what needs to happen and that's where that even mindedness is established but as i said not just here but in here this is where the neutralization takes place feeling no attraction verse 21 feeling no attraction to the sensory world the yogi lives in the ever new joy of his being united to spirit he attains the perfection of absolute bliss just in that krishna i think in that practice in the wanting to express and experience even mindedness we're already heading towards absolute bliss that's where absolute bliss lies at the very center of the two extremes and the more we express in extremes the less we're or the farther we will be from that center whichever way you look at it if you think the goods also need to be expressed in the extremes or the bads wherever you find yourself on the spectrum where you are is farther away from absolute bliss which is right in the middle i love the word attraction and we've come across this word once before feeling no attraction to the sensory world the yogi lives in the ever new joy of his being i don't know if you remember in our very first few classes this is when we were establishing the the characters um there was this one character by the name ashwatthama and ashwatthama our guru said um is symbolic of that quality of attraction now ashwatthama is who is the son of dronacharya dronacharya represents habit so what we've done is we're actually attracted to those things that we've create a habitual connection with whether that's money whether that's sex whether that's people whether that's relationships so everything this we think the world is going to give us or that we are drawn to in in the world is because we have created a habit around that and while ashwatthama he just means attraction you see he doesn't he's not uh, good or bad he's attraction that means he's that magnetic power and if you remember we talked about the two magnetic poles within us one positive pole also constantly trying to draw us has power to draw and the negative pole where the kundalini is which is you can say call that maya and call this god even though these are just terms that has an equal pull to us but where are we going to get attracted towards more because ashwatthama is the son is the offspring is the result of our habits where are our habits mostly in the world so sensory attraction is what has a hold on us during the war of uh, kurukshetra you remember yudhishthir has to lie <laughs> and say that ashwatthama is dead now of course they you know there's a 
elephant who's dying whose name is also Ashwatthama just because so that the Yudhishthir does not have to you know say a blatant lie <laughs> but at least he can say the elephant Ashwatthama is dying or is dead he says that now Yudhishthir represents that calm state essentially that even-minded state this is our fifth chakra right here now it is in that state of even-mindedness that one can say my attraction to all sensory perceptions is dead. Now, the other interesting thing about Ashwatthama, because on that level you'll think, then what's left? If I'm not attracted to absolutely anything, and this is the state of those people who are just like, what's the point of anything? You know, nothing matters, and it doesn't matter if I do something or if I don't do something. What's left? So, Ashwatthama in that battle. Of everybody, including the Pandavas and the Kauravas. When I say Pandavas, I mean the Pandava allies and the Pandava armies, not the five brothers. But apart from the five brothers, everybody else dies except Ashwatthama. So all the Kauravas are dead. All the Pandavas allies and army is dead. Just Ashwatthama is the only living quality remaining. Because after... We have withdrawn our senses from both the Ira and the Pingala. Not just the Kauravas because they're bad, but also that outward energy of the Pandava energy which represents this upward surge, but an upward surge that is still in the Ira, not yet in the Shushumna. So we use that upward surge first to help overcome the downward pull, but then once the downward pull has been destroyed, Ashwatthama comes and burns the camp of the Pandavas, killing everyone. Leaving just him, and Ashwatthama is then said to be immortal, still roaming uh, somewhere. <laughs> so that means that as we withdraw our sensory attractions to the outward world, the attractiveness of the divine begins to naturally start to draw us upward. So it's not like we're like climbing and making such an effort. We're actually less made. The real effort we have to make is like a, a, a balloon is to drop the weights. Not so much kind of to pump the gas all the time. But the more weights we drop, the more naturally we begin to move up. And this is that attraction that Krishna is talking about. We're either attract, attracted to Maya, which means either we are magnetically drawn towards Maya based on our habits or we are magnetically drawn back into spirit. And it depends on where we place that attention. And it is Yudhishthir, the state of even-mindedness, that can say Ashwatthama is dead. Now, even though at that moment Ashwatthama was himself was not dead, but that state can bring that true affirmation that says, that's it, I'm done. I'm no longer, nothing is pulling me outside of myself. <coughs> O son of Kunti Arjuna, because sense pleasures spring from outside the self, they all have a beginning and an end and bring only misery. No one of any understanding would seek happiness through them. Well, that last line is a, is a tight slap to our face. Because Krishna is saying, if you have any understanding, you would not seek your happiness through them. But for some reason, we're hell-bent on seeking our happiness through them. But then he says, of course, he's trying to help us see sense pleasures, which is 
every pleasure the world can offer, which means it is that which we take in through our senses, spring from outside the self. As in, they're not, they're not, they don't spring forth from, what is the self here? Is pure consciousness. They don't come out of pure consciousness. They come out of identification with our with the things, be it the, our individuality, our personality, or everything around us. And since they don't spring from, from pure consciousness, they have a beginning and an end and bring only misery. Now, why do they bring misery? Because anything that you consider pleasurable, the very fact that it's going to end, means when it ends, you're going to be unhappy. And that is why we have to have so many desires because things are constantly ending. And so it's like we are juggling with all these balls, trying to keep as many balls in the air. So if this relationship is somehow coming to an end, well, maybe, maybe money is going to do it. And when that's not quite doing it, then maybe, you know, if I assert my dominance over somebody else, that's going to do it. Well, if that's not doing, maybe if I just don't put out any energy and I just be lazy all day, maybe that will do it. And all the sense pleasures we're hoping, they're all sooner or later, all of them, because they're not eternal, like pure consciousnesses. Only consciousness is eternal. That's what we carry with us lifetime after lifetime, our consciousness. And, of course, all the seeds that have gotten attached to that consciousness, unfortunately. But even they, sooner or later, no matter how many lifetimes you deal with one issue, even that has an end. So that's both a positive news, like it's going to end, but it also tries, shows us that if anything's going to end, the fact is it's going to bring you misery. Because if it ends, after that, because you've placed so much of your hope on that one thing, the moment it ends, it's just going to draw you back into that downward spiral, one way or the other. He is a true yogi who, while living on earth, and up to the last moment of his earth life, can master every impulse of desire and antipathy. Antipathy means strong aversion. So has to we have to neutralize both these energies, which is the energy to want and the energy to resist. Again, we come back to those beautiful words. What comes of itself, let it come. I was thinking about, you know, we're talking about the, the impartiality of karma. I was thinking even all saints go just allow their karma to come through them, to them. And they're just, they themselves don't resist anything at all. A, a thought came into my mind, especially uh, thinking about Swami Kriyananda, who was constantly taking on, I mean, he was taking on our karma, which is another intriguing thought, which means even we can't just neutralize our karma. If our guru or a saint even he has to take that karma on, which means the law needs to be fulfilled one way or the other. Either I have to go through it or my guru or a saint takes that away from me. But someone has to go through it. No energy can be destroyed. It can only be transformed. It can only be transferred. And that's what these saints do. And there was this beautiful story of Swami Kriyananda's that comes to my mind, especially in the terms of even-mindedness is um, a story told by Naya Swami Kirtani, who's the director of our work in Europe. And she said one morning, Swami had been going through just a very, very hard, Swami Kriyananda, this is just a hard karmic, you know, his body and his, just his entire physical reality was just being pounded 
was going through insomnia. I mean, just Narayani will know uh, the entire litany, the entire list of karmas that he both allowed to flow through him and just naturally took on from all of us around him. And there he was one morning at breakfast, you know, just sitting with his head, just... I mean, it wasn't like he wasn't suffering on that human level. It wasn't like he didn't recognize the 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 ferociousness of the karma that he was experiencing. And there he was, kind of, you know, letting letting that expression also be there. It wasn't just oh la di da, all this karma it doesn't matter to me. It it was affecting him. That's the that's the quality of karma that it passes through you, whether through your disciple or through the guru. But there he was and Kirtani, she came in, uh, Swami Kirtani, and she just said, ah, Swamiji, sometimes I just get so mad at Divine Mother because, you know, and she wanted to, of course, finish the sentence that says, how could she do this to you? You've given your life to her. And Swami just says, don't, just cut, cuts her off mid-sentence. And there he is and he just says, Divine Mother will can do whatever she pleases with this body. And that's the even-minded state that we've got to find in ourselves. And I tell you this story also to show you that it takes a lot of energy and effort. That this even-minded state won't just creep up upon us one day of, ah, you know, I've been meditating along and so now it just doesn't matter to me, whatever happens to me. It takes a lot of strength to stay in God, to stay in bliss, even while the world around you is expressing duality. And he is that true yogi who while living on earth and until that last moment of his earthly life can master every impulse of desire, both what I want and antipathy, what I am averse to. He alone among mortals is a happy human being. Only one who possesses inner bliss, who is firmly centered in the inner self and who is illumined by the inner light. You've got the three inners. <laughs> attains complete liberation. His doubts and hesitations removed, his karmas all obliterated, his senses subdued, delighting only in the good of all, the sage attains emancipation in spirit. His doubts and hesitations all removed. These are, these are nice signs to just observe in our lives. How clear am I? How completely, you know, how unshaken do I stand in clarity both of faith and of my own intuitive perceptions that I receive from the divine. His doubts and hesitations removed. His karmas obliterated. Now, karmas obliterated in this case especially doesn't just mean that nothing's happening around because I have no more karma. It means... The karma can't do anything to you anymore. It's just passing through you. And there you are just saying, Divine Mother can do whatever she pleases with this body. His sense is subdued, which means that you're not receiving your inspiration, your understanding of the world solely through your senses anymore. And delighting only in the good of all, the sage attains emancipation in spirit. The good of all. This is where we were, where the freed soul can see a priest, a dog, an elephant, an outcast, an idiot, all at the same. But the same doesn't mean at just some sort of low level of chaltike, they all exist. And they're good. They're all we want is the highest 
for absolutely everyone. And that's a big one to see. Do you want the highest for absolutely everyone? Not here, not in the mind, but in action, in thought, in constant reaffirmation of everything that you do. Renunciates who are without desire or anger, controlled in mind and self-realized are inwardly free, whether living in this world or merged in the infinite. And this is the state of Nirvikalpa Samadhi. Now the next stanza, we're, we're pretty much done, but with the whole next stanza, I wanted to in fact go into the uh, kind of reiterate the concepts of Ashtanga Yoga because this is what Krishna is talking about here. And especially to emphasize the Yamas and the Niyamas as how to judge right action. Because we've been talking about right action over and over again and we've been talking about how it's important to get even-minded and the Yamas and the Niyamas are the way, the only way to align ourselves to that truth. There's no other, what's my, you know, what's my right action? You know, there's that, are you practicing the Yamas and the Niyamas? That's your right action. Are you able to go through that list and just say, oh wow, yeah, every day I'm aware of them. I try my best to get to them because one, which is the control, the Yam, is how not to let the life force move out of your central channel. And the niyam is the do's is how to bring that life force back into the central channel. And those are the two things. That's even-mindedness. Even-mindedness is not the, you know, what you might see on a television serial from a saint who's just, you know, just smiling uh, bleakly and just saying, sab govind hai. Even-mindedness is this dynamic state of knowing that no energy not one iota of your life force is not under your control at all times. That it just doesn't step out from within the Shishumna. And as I said, that takes a lot of power, a lot of effort, and a lot of constancy with everything that we do. So you can't just kind of have a vague idea of the Yamas, Niyamas, and then say, oh yeah, yeah, that's a nice list, and yeah, every now and then I'm, I'm aware of them. This is going to be, what do I do every day? So I want to go deeper into it. And uh, so since it'll be a longer discussion, perhaps that last two stanzas we'll take in our next class. So you want to do it now? Should yeah. we? And then yeah. skip the ohms with them? Yeah, if you want. What do you guys say? <laughs> well, since, since you have no say here, uh, we can pretty much do exactly what, <laughs> what we want. What we want. And you have to be... Even-minded and cheerful. Accept it completely. <laughs> this is your first test. Will you accept the fact that we're just going to go on? All right, let's, let's look at this then. Here we were. Renunciates who are without desire or anger, controlled in mind, we just went through this, and self-realized are inwardly free, whether living in the world or merged in the infinite. And I said, this is the state of nirvikalpa samadhi. But before we get to that state, let's look at that next two stanzas. So you want to say the numbers? Okay. Which is 27 and 28. The Muni, which is the one who, for whom liberation is the sole purpose of life, controls his senses, mind and intellect, removing himself from contact with them by neutralizing the currents of prana and apana 
in the spine, which manifests outwardly as the inhalation and exhalation in the nostrils. He fixes his gaze in the forehead at the point midway between the two eyebrows, thereby converting the dual currents of physical vision into the single omniscient vision of the spiritual eye, such a one attains complete emancipation. Now, if we look at these steps, so far Krishna has been really talking to us about right action, right action, right action, right action, right action, right action. You know, that's the, that's the, the one kind of continuous thread starting from the very beginning, which is Arjuna's dilemma is, what should I do? What's right here? And Krishna just talks about fight. And in this case, it's engage in this battle. And our engagement in this battle is of these 10 aspects, which is the yam and the niyam. So first he's establishing yam and niyam. So thirdly, which he doesn't mention here, which, but it is part of that outward action, is asan, which is that straight spine. But then he goes into, what does he say? Controls his senses, mind and intellect, which is pranayam. So you've got yam, niyam, asan, pranayam. Removing himself from contact with them, which is pratyahar, which is the interiorization then of the life force away from the senses, away from the mind. Neutralizes the currents of pran and apan in the spine, which manifest outwardly as inhalation and exhalation. This is pretty exactly our Kriya practice, where we take the currents in the pran and apan if, and we uh, direct them, control them in a very, very specific way, through a very specific channel, through a specific practice, thereby, as Krishna said previously in another stanza, he says, where the pran is offered into the apan and the apan back into the pran, thereby neutralizing these two dual currents within us. Then he fixes his gaze in the forehead at the point between the eyebrows. So where, where were we? We have got yam niyam asan, this outward reality. We've got pranayam control, pratyahar interiorization, dharan concentration. So fixing his gaze in the forehead. And after that, when concentration becomes dhyan, where fixing your gaze becomes complete absorption, where he says, thereby converting the dual currents of the physical vision into a single omniscient vision of the spiritual eye. So where in concentration, there are two realities. I concentrate on this. In meditation, those two become one, where there is no I and there is no this, and there is only absorption, only merging. Then such a one, attains complete emancipation. Such a one attains after dhyan, the state of samadhi. Now, again, let's focus just for a moment on the yamas and the niyamas. What are they? You've got the standard ones that Patanjali gave, which are non-violence, non-lying. So those nons, those controls. Where does our intention, our tendency naturally want to go? It wants to go into anger. And so I have to stop it from going into anger. It wants to go into distorting truth, even so slightly. So I have to make sure I, it does not go into distorting the truth. It wants to go into sensuality, wants to go into experiencing the senses. It wants to go towards greed. It wants to go towards attachment. 
So that's our where the energy tends to go, which is what? Based on the habit and the attraction. Dronacharya and Ashwatthama are at play here. And so we're going to neutralize, we're fighting them. This is literally the battle. We're fighting Dronacharya and Ashwatthama on the battlefield through the Yamas. And then you've got the Niyamas, which is the contentment, cleanliness. Those things that we are going to have to ensure that will keep bringing us in the spine. The first is the energy should not leave the spine. The second is bring it back into the spine. And so you've got contentment, cleanliness, austerity, which is the tapasya, self-study, swadhyay, and Ishwar Pranidhan, the devotion. Now, these five things are things Patanjali kind of gave us because they if you look at them clearly enough, they pretty much encapsulate the entirety of who we are and what we tend to do. But Yam Niyam can also be very individual in the sense of what's my, what today is what I'm going to do that ensures my energy does not leave my spine. That means I try to stay even-minded. And how much can I feed? So one is how do I fight the Kauravas? The other is how do I strengthen the Pandavas? Both things need to happen simultaneously. And so that becomes the practice. That's the right action each one of us have to engage in every day. And it's not easy. And it's not meant to be easy. But when we engage in it, and it's not even about succeeding here. It's really about engaging in it. Because the succeeding is left to whom? Is left to Krishna. He's the guy who's actually pulling the strings. He's the guy who's made it all. He's the guy who's built this battlefield, built all these guys. So he's just wanting us to engage. He doesn't tell Arjuna that, listen, you're just, you're going to win and you're just going to do it. Listen, you're just, I'm all for you. And he's not rooting for Arjuna either. He just wants Arjuna to engage. He just wants Arjuna not to be a coward. And coward here means I'll just let let those lower tendencies, let them just reign. You know, what's the big deal? Isn't peace better? Isn't just it fine? No. <laughs> and so that's all the divines really expecting from us, if we can even call that, that outward action. And then that straight spine and with the straight spine and holding that straight spine throughout, because that's where you want the energy, but also really focus on your the level of your chin, which is essentially the neck. Because watch throughout the day what your neck does. If it's a little upward, even just a little bit, that means there's a lot of energy being uh, kind of blocked and accumulating at the medulla, which is the seat of the eye, the seat of the ego. And so, you know, of course, is the natural pride that we talk about. But watch for it. And of course, if the head tends to be a little downward, there's that little dejection all the time. That means the energy is either, so either we're feeding the ego or we're kind of suppressing the ego, which is not gonna work either because it takes us into an inferiority reality, but yet keeps us engaged with the fact that we are not good enough. I am not good enough. And so try to keep even the fact that your chin should stay parallel to the ground throughout the day. Watch for what the neck does because it will give you very clear indications of what your own energy is doing, where your consciousness is centered most at the time. Then, of course, control, interiorization, and this is both outward and inward realities. Controlling our impulses. You can't just, once uh, our guru said, I don't, what was the words? 
I don't expect you to overcome, but I do expect you to resist. And that's where we have to build ourselves. Or as he would sometimes jokingly say, if you can't develop willpower, at least develop won't power. Yeah, I won't do that. I can't say that I will meditate, but at least I won't do something that will draw me even lower. And that's the game here. That's the fight. That's the battle. What we choose every day. And as Patanjali says, that's the ladder we are going to ascend until finally we get to the state of Samadhi, which only comes when we are in meditation. In meditation, having fixed our gaze, having merged, having expanded, we feel that unity. But then when we step out of meditation, then we're back. We're back. The ego still has enough life force around it, revolving around it, that it will hold us in ourselves. And then so therefore the 26th verses, he who is without desire or anger, controlled in mind and self-realized. So you're already, you've already realized the self in your meditations are inwardly free, whether living in the world or merged in the infinite. And then comes the next state of nirvikalpa samadhi. And it doesn't matter when you're in meditation or when you're out of it. And finally, the last stanza to close this chapter. Stanza 29. He finds peace who knows me as the enjoyer of all offerings, which is the yagyas and austerities, as the infinite Lord of creation and as the dearest friend of all. And that's the sweet sweetness of Krishna, isn't it? I will enjoy everything through you. That bliss that we think we're ex going to experience is also just God's bliss where he's experiencing and he can give you bliss and help you enjoy in both the offerings and the austerities. Because not only is he the infinite Lord of all creation, but he is your dearest friend. And that relationship we must hold to with our Guru. He's our dearest friend and he will give us even in our tough moments, if we allow him, if we offer it to him, he will give us in return for our offering bliss. So if you think that's a good deal to take, <laughs> I suggest you sign right here. <laughs> and that's it, chapter 5. Any thoughts, Narayani, that you picked up on? Uh, I was thinking that for me personally, I think the last two weeks, my main lesson that life is teaching me right now, it's really even-minded and cheerful under all circumstances. We have been going to visit many bungalows and hopefully to find the right one to move in as soon as possible. Very recently, we received pictures of this fantastic bungalow, like so beautiful, the perfect location. I mean, it was, gorgeous, amazing. I mean, Shurja and I saw that bungalow and we both felt like, boom, this, you know, the energy suddenly <laughs> here. We just saw ourselves packing, moving everything there with our suitcases. We were already talking, we are going to do this, we are going to do that, those many bedrooms. Anyway, like we were we already, had built it already in. <laughs> so we went yesterday. So on our drive there we were like super excited super happy like with almost the certainty we were going to rent that bungalow that bungalow was ours 
So anyway, we reached there and oh my God, it was like completely like opposite almost from what we saw on those pictures. I mean, super old, a very bad location, lots of broken, broken. I mean, it was really, really bad. And I found myself like almost with all my strength, you know, like recovering, you know, like in a matter of seconds from not really allowing my energy to be completely low, not to judge the person who sent us those pictures and telling him, look, I mean, how you dare to, to do this, to send pictures that are completely opposite from reality. So I, I saw in myself how Maya was trying to to pull me down, to be very, very hard with that person, to start, you know, developing thoughts of doubts and uncertainty, you know, like, masters, what do you really want from us? You just created, you know, this enthusiastic energy. And right now it was so obvious that this wasn't the place. So I'm explaining you this, but again, there were like, seconds of or a minute that I saw myself fighting this battle and somehow just boom, I, what Surja was explaining, withdraw, interiorize that energy, lift it up and kind of trade myself once more to see that situation as a great opportunity for me to practice these teachings no matter what it looks, how you feel, this is a great a way to really trust, be in the now, see the fun of it, to see how life throws at you situations where you really need to test the teachings. So it was a wonderful experience to, to really see how we need to constantly have the courage to be above those circumstances. I love Yogananda's most advanced disciple where she said as her mantra, change no circumstances, change me because this is what the spiritual path is all about. So if we really want to reinforce our Pandavas, our Pandavas within ourselves, a very good practice is whether in pleasure, but especially <laughs> in pain or especially in disappointment, don't keep reinforcing those thoughts with those words, this is horrible, or I don't like, or that person did that. I remember one of our friends who said that in one satsang with Naya Swami Jaya, he gave a very good advice to our brothers, the monks. He said to all of them, remember this, no matter how tough the situations might be, never be the first person to complain. <laughs> you can be the second, <laughs> but, but don't be the first. And I think this is a wonderful advice for all of us, perhaps throughout this week, 
no matter you know what are you going through no matter what that whatsapp is saying you know no matter if that person is not showing up on time if you know things are not working in the way you would like don't be the first person to complain like almost go against that process and look for you know okay this didn't happen well but at least as as i was telling to myself yesterday well this is not the ashram but at least you know it has a beautiful garden and at least i'm here and at least i'm outdoors and i'm not at home and there is so much green so i tried to see the beauty of that outing and we were with wonderful friends and it was really a wonderful day so it didn't turn out in the way we were hoping and we wanted but many other wonderful things happened so i would say as a homework for this week should be this don't be the first person to complain to complain in fact quite the opposite try to see what's you know in the middle of that chaos what's you know the good thing from you being in that particular situation right there right now all right you've got your marching orders <laughs> this week's battle is going to be fight fought on the non complaining uh, field And let's see how much of our dronacharya habit has already kind of created that complaining habit and we're going to have to keep pulling back from him. The fun part of that is that you always have to you're like waiting who's going to complain first then at least I can unburden myself. But even that much space that you yeah, have to wait for somebody, somebody else in fact it helps a lot. What I love about this practice is that it's it's actually doable. Yeah, it's very doable. <laughs> you know, you're yeah. not just saying don't ever complain and just kind of pretend that everything's fine. You're just like, okay, I would be the first. And you see the beauty of it, so don't be too hard on yourself <laughs> that you may notice the first time you don't say but you have to say it and you say it maybe like after 1 minute. But maybe the next day you wait 2 minutes and then you say it. <laughs> maybe 3 minutes, 4 minutes, 5 minutes until eventually come that time where you know you don't even need to say it you don't even think about it you don't even perceive life anymore as something bad or good like everything is completely neutral and the purpose of me being here is not to react not to change anything but to change me in the process